Hello, family, and welcome to Kingwood Methodist. In John 4.23, Jesus states that a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. As we gather at church and open God's Word, we are not just coming together for the sake of gathering, but also to learn the truth of God and how we can grow to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we continually surrender our lives to the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we become the type of worshipers our Heavenly Father seeks. Let's dive in together. Um, I can I can say um, just a, a word of thanks uh, for the, the children's ministry that uh, is raising these, these kids in beautiful ways. Um, and teaching them that the Bible is is true. Um, I had a third grader who got to receive a Bible, and it was a it was a pretty cool thing to see uh, the excitement that he had. He even brought it to school. I was incredibly proud of him, and was carrying it around and showing his friends. And so, just a just a beautiful testament uh, to the way that uh, that that we as a church hold up the Bible as as important and valuable um, for our kiddos. And so, I just just a huge huge thanks to the the children's ministry for uh, the, the beautiful work that they do. So as we, um, as we continue our series uh, called The Art of Neighboring, uh, we've been kind of looking at this, this idea of uh, the great command that God gave to us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what does it look like for us to take that, uh, that word neighbor that we um, oftentimes in our, in our culture consider a noun, um, that is my neighbor, right? And, and begin to turn that into a, an action, a, a verb uh, that goes along with love my neighbor, right? How do I love my neighbor? How do I, with the goal, uh, how do I neighbor uh, with the goal of love, passing on the love of Jesus Christ? And so as we look at uh, scripture, we've, we've kind of processed through a couple of different scriptures. Uh, and each, each week we've seen how Jesus takes this, um, these common notions of the world and flips them on their head. Uh, that's, what, that's what Christ, the kingdom of God coming into earth, intersecting with the earth means, is that um, the kingdom of God looks very different than the kingdom of earth. And so when the kingdom of God intersects with the kingdom of the earth, it, it causes conflict. It flips things on their head. And so uh, when we ask, who is my neighbor, right? It changes the whole Jewish concept of neighbor on its head. That no longer is neighbor about the, the person that is in your tribe and in your clan, but now it is everyone. It is this call to love even the Gentile in that manner. We saw that with the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. We saw last week how, uh, how when God intersects with our time, it reorients and it flips our understanding of our time on our head. Right? All, all of a sudden, these interruptions that, that happen to hit our lives are not... Um, not a, a disruption to our time, but if we are embracing Christ in our lives, then these interruptions are our time. They are the life that God gave us. They are the call that we have in our lives. Uh, I, love, I love when um, somebody hears a message and then God interacts with them in some, in some way throughout that week. I got a text from someone who was sitting right back here uh, this week and uh, how God interacted with them uh, and 
really interrupted their life and interrupted their schedule this week. Um, I got a, a text, um, and I, I, let me pull it up real quick. So he was, uh, this, this guy, I'm not going to say his name, but um, this guy went to work for the first time in a, in a while in his, um, in his shirt and, uh, and tie and full suit, which he doesn't usually do, but um, he says this. In church yesterday, uh, they talked about interruptions in our daily life, and today was the first time in a while that I wore a tie, but uh, my daughter came in saying that an elderly couple had pulled into the parking lot with a flat tire. The husband asked her if she could take he and his wife to the doctor's appointment across 59, and I told her to take both of them and give them our cell phone number, and I would fix the flat. And so you get this image of uh, this guy in a suit and tie fixing a flat because it pulled into his, his workplace. When, when they got back and uh, was seeing if, when they got back and saw that the flat was fixed, they were um, thankful and, and rejoiced. Uh, <clears throat> and then immediately, uh, a pregnant woman walked up and said that her car wouldn't start. And so you got this guy who uh, took, took a break from work in a suit and tie is now dripping in sweat in a Houston morning uh, with his, his uh, undershirt on and has fixed a tire and is now jump starting a car. And it gave him the opportunity to be the message of Christ in that moment. And he said, he said I don't think I would have responded in the same way and with the same attitude uh, if I hadn't been looking for interruptions from God. What a beautiful thing when our time is flipped on its head and it begins to be used for the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful image. Today in our text, we see another way in which uh, our lives are reoriented, our understanding of the world is reoriented by uh, the message of Christ, by the kingdom of, of God coming into our existence. In our text today, in John chapter 13, we see uh, a world-changing moment where Jesus redefines the roles of authority. So let's go to God. Holy Spirit, as we uh, interact with your word, God, would you, um, would you make it real and alive to us? God, would you... Um, would you reorient our lives to yours in the midst of the reading of the text? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask these things. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 13 is where we'll be. Uh, and this is um, the beginning of the upper room discourse, uh, what scholars call the upper room discourse. It means that Jesus brought all of his disciples up into the upper room and began to give them kind of last teachings. These are the last teachings that we see in John's gospel before Jesus goes to the cross. And so these are important words that he has for his disciples, his that he has loved, his that he has walked with, his that he has journeyed with, and he wants to give them these parting words. And so he speaks these, these words, um, John chapter 13, all the way through John chapter 16. If you, um, if you have time, I'd encourage you just to sit down and read that as a chunk uh, at some point. But John, John's gospel is a little bit different than the other gospels because um, it's not a synoptic gospel. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they kind of hit the high points of Jesus's ministry in more or less chronological order. Um, but John's gospel, he intentionally, because he's read the other gospels, he's read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, and so he comes back and he fills in the gaps. So he intentionally writes in a way that hit stories that, um, that the other gospels don't tell. And so this, this, is, this story is only told in John's gospel. Um, and so, uh, so let's kind of dive in and uh, understand kind of what, what John is trying to do in our text today. John chapter 13, starting in verse one, 
through 17. It was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So this, um, by John framing these two, by repeating those two words, loved, um, he is kind of, this introduction paragraph is kind of um, framing this text for us. That it is about God's love for his people. Having loved them, agapeo, having loved them who were his own, he loved them to the end. Starting in verse 2. Come back to verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. This is the, the Passover feast. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Pause. Why did, why did Jesus, or why did John highlight that right there? Why did he kind of insert that, that one little um, kind of note in the midst of telling this story? It must be significant. We'll come back to that. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. Pause. Uh, so that, uh, that so is really important for us. Um, so whenever the, the word so is in scripture, it means that there is something that the thing before has caused the thing after. So because of this thing before, this next statement is true. So because... Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew that he had all authority because Jesus knew his position and he knew that he had come from God and was returning to God, right? To sit at the right hand of God in all power and authority because he understood his authority. So the next part is true. So the next part he did. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a big basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing but later you will understand. You see, he paused the entire meal. Right? This is usually when someone washes the other's feet. It's when they're beginning the, the ceremony. It's when they walk into the room because they've come from the outside where their feet are absolutely dirty and they don't want to get track all of that dirt into the room. And so from a practical standpoint, a, uh, a, a servant would wash anybody's feet that came into the room. It was very practical, right? They didn't want dirt everywhere. And so they would wash their feet. This was something that would happen at the very beginning of the interaction. But this, this is something very different. They may have even had their feet washed at the, at the beginning when they walked into the room. There may have been a servant in the room to do this task, but Jesus stops the meal. Like in the middle of the meal, the meal is being prepared and, and ready and they're about to serve the meal and he says, pause. I want to highlight this moment. I've been doing this for a very specific reason. Um, there is a tradition that, that oftentimes the, uh, a, a student would wash the feet of their rabbi to show that they are, um, that show that they are below, that show that they are um, in service to, to show that they will walk alongside them 
that they will um, gather, get the dust off of their sandals as they walk closely behind. And so Jesus says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It's a bold statement. And then, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my head as well, my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who, you, who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. And I love this, this next line. I kind of get, um, when I read John's gospel, I kind of get um, an image of kind of a salty Jesus, right? He's got a little edge to him. Um, but I can imagine him looking out of the corner of his eye in this moment. He says, those of you uh, have... Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, as he looks out of the corner of his eye at Judas. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you is clean. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place, and said, do you, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set the example that you should do as I have done for you. And truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So help me out here. What's happening in this text? I want you to think through that. There's a lot that happens kind of on the surface, but as we, as we really start to pull back the layers, we get to see uh, a whole other spiritual element that's happening underneath the surface. For us, as uh, in this context of our sermon series, we, we understand a little bit more about what he means by loving your neighbor as yourself as we read this text. You see, I believe that what this, one of the things that this pulls, pulls out is that biblical neighboring does not discriminate. Biblical neighboring does not discriminate. If you look back at verse two, uh, John is very clear to let us know that that the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas had already made up in his mind what he was gonna do. And so he comes to, before Jesus and he sees Jesus washing his feet even though he knows that he is about to, to betray his master and send him to the cross, send him to be killed. And we know also that Jesus knew about Jesus because he called Jesus out or Jesus called him out in the middle of that room. It's one of those moments of, of eerie tension. You see, John is very clear to let us know 
that regardless of the history or the issues that we have with someone, it should not have any effect on the way that we love them and that we're, that we're called to serve them. Right, we're getting close to the, the year of election and uh, as we enter into this season, when someone puts a, a, a sign of a donkey in their yard, it doesn't mean that we should hate them. It doesn't mean we should stop loving them as our neighbor. Right, if Jesus can humble himself before Judas, then we ought to be able to love and serve those that we are ideologically opposed to. We ought to be able to love and serve someone regardless of what they did to you, of how they vote, or who they love. I think this is incredibly important for us. I, uh, I get, um, I've gotten way too many HOA notices uh, in my days. And oftentimes you know exactly who reported you, don't you? That's maybe the neighbor that you ought to love the most. <laughs> if you have a neighbor who you've gotten in a beef with or someone in your life that is, is uh, ideologically opposed to you, I think what we understand through this interaction with Jesus and Judas is that that's the very person that we ought to stop the meal and wash their feet for. The second thing that I think we see in our text is that, um, that faith requires humility. Faith requires humility. In verse eight, we see, uh, we see this, this really powerful line where Peter comes to Jesus and he's, he is uh, completely opposed to this interaction. He says, no, you're not gonna wash my feet. I've seen you wash the other disciples' feet and I'm not having it because I respect you way too much for you to take that position in my life. And Jesus says something that I think puts us in our place, even today. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Friends, this has nothing really to do with the, the second part of that command to love your neighbor as yourself, but it has everything to do with the first part of that command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. If we don't have the beginning of that, we cannot effectively love our neighbor as ourselves. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's calling Peter all the way back to the Psalms. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Back in Psalm 51, uh, David is, is declaring his, his brokenness in the midst of a great sin that he has committed. And he says, he says very clearly, cleanse me, O God, with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You see, this is a psalm of brokenness. Unless you allow me to wash you, you have no part in me. Friends, we, um, we very clearly have a problem in, in the United States of self-sufficiency. We are, we are able to live out our lives washing ourselves and looking pretty clean. 
We're able to, to do enough good things that the world looks at us and says, that's a good person. And our faith can be, become a self-sufficient, self-washing faith. But what Jesus says here is shocking. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless you humble yourself before me, unless you get rid of this error of self-sufficiency in your faith, then you have no part in me. Unless you recognize that you are broken, dirty, and that you can't clean yourself, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you buy the lie that you are perfect just the way that you are and that you have no need for change in your life, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's very clear about that. Yes, absolutely, God loves you just the way you are. But at the same time, yes, absolutely, God calls you in the very next breath to come and die. To come and lay down your life for me. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That requires us to live a faith that is not self-sufficient. I love this, this quote from uh, one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson. He's the one that wrote the message translation of the Bible. Uh, but he wrote this book that I would, I would recommend to anyone to read. It's called Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. He wrote this in the 80s. So if you can imagine how uh, afraid of the instant society he was in the 80s, how terrified he would be of the society that we have created today. But he says this, he says, a self-sufficient life, which is, uh, which is so much the preferred lifestyle of our culture, makes God a utility. What that means is that, that we have made God a means to an end, not the end. I, I can remember um, most of my life living my life afraid of hell. My primary motivation was that, that I didn't want to go to hell. Right? I didn't even know or care what this heaven thing was. I didn't even care what, who, who this God person was, but I know that I didn't want to burn for the rest of my life. That sounds terrible. I know that I didn't want weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds terrible. So if God is the way to, to do that, then absolutely I'll take God. Check. Done. God was a means to an end. And then I could go on living self-sufficiently. I could live out my days making my own decisions. I could live out my days doing enough good things that people would look at me and say, you're pretty clean. But church, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Our self-sufficiency is incompatible with the gospel. 
So I want to invite the, the band to come back up. Um, if you're sitting here in the room and you say, God, God has been a means to an end for most of my life. That I can go most of my days, I can go most of my week without even thinking about God and my, and my life is pretty good. I want to challenge you that you have been lured into the, to the, the worldly idea that self-sufficiency is key. That on your own, you're good enough. Church, God has so much more for you. If you step into God's presence and say, God, I need you. He has so much more for you. He desires so deeply to fill you. He desires to give you access to the power that he has to create the whole world. That same power lives within you if we accept him. He desires to change the world through you. He desires to transform your family through you. If you can't come to God and say, God, I need you, And church, I think we've missed the point of God. As we we take communion today, I'm gonna do a little switch up, band. Um, As we take communion today, I want this to be your call to the altar. As we take communion today, I'm gonna place this bowl on this chair here. And I want you to walk by and I want you to feel the, the, the washing power of Christ. No, there's nothing special about this water. But what it symbolizes is that you can't go on living your life in self-sufficiency. What Christ calls us to is a transforming power that only happens when we allow Christ to wash over us. So if you've been living in self-sufficiency, you have no place in the kingdom of God. What a challenging message. If you, um, if that's you, I don't want you to leave this, this place today without experiencing Christ, without coming to God in, 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 the fullness of, in the fullness of your brokenness and saying, God, cleanse me with hyssop. In that verse, In that verse in Psalms, he says one thing. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. This is a call forward to what's about to happen. What we see here is that the blood of the lamb covers us. And when the blood of the lamb covers us, then we are clean. So if, if, if that's you, if you say I, I, I can live out my life in my own sufficiency, I, I, I believe that God is calling us to, um, to lay that down. And so if, if you would, as you come up, as you take communion, would you just put your hands out as you kneel, kneel at, the, at the altar and somebody will, will come by and just pray over you. If you have your hands open like this, um, somebody will come by and just pray over you. But let this be a, a moment that you don't leave this place without reconciling with God. As we take communion today, um, we recognize that 
that Christ meets us in this space. And so when Christ gave himself up for us, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. He called this the cup of forgiveness. Forgiveness for our own self-sufficiency, for our own pride. And so Holy Spirit, would you pour out your presence on these common elements of bread and cup? Would you make them for us the body of Christ redeemed by your blood? God, would this be a moment where we come before you and say, God, I need you. I've been living my life in my own self-sufficiency and God, I, I want outside of the box of my limitations. And I want to see you use me to do incredible things in the world. God, would you beat us here? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Churches, we take of communion. We'll take by via intinction, which just means you hold out your hands and you receive the body of Christ. And you can dip it in the cup and receive uh, the, the cup of forgiveness. Forgiveness that is found only in Christ. May Christ be sufficient for you in your brokenness and in your weakness. Amen. Uh, there'll be uh, st two stations in the back and two stations up here in the front. If you need uh, gluten-free elements, you can find, find them up here. Um, and if reminder, if, if you go to the altar with your hands out, somebody will come by and just pray over you um, in that moment. Come. The table is set.